0: Welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm Julie Ravner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're taping today on Thursday, April 2nd at 10 a.m. As always, news happens fast, even more so these days, and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today we are joined virtually, of course, so bear with us please by Alice Miranda Olstein of Politico. Good morning. Margot Sanger Katz, the New York Times. Hello. And Joanne Cannon of Politico. Hi, everybody. Later in this episode, we will have our Bill of the Month interview. This month, KHN's Liz Zabo, with a guest appearance from one of her cats, talks about a very expensive genetic test that at least medically turned out okay. So today is our first time podcasting from separate locations, and we're still working out the kinks, so if the sound quality isn't quite up to our usual standards, I hope you'll understand. Also, there will be a guest appearance or two by Barking Dogs. Uh, And no surprise, today we will talk all coronavirus all the time, but... Let's start with the ACA. How is that connected to COVID-19, you ask? Well, let's see. 11 states and Washington, D.C. have so far reopened their exchanges for enrollment. I have said this repeatedly and will do so again right now. If you lose your job and your health insurance, you automatically are eligible to buy insurance under the Affordable Care Act. But reopening the marketplaces could help people who didn't buy when they could have and could help people upgrade who might have bought insurance that doesn't cover very many benefits. The administration said it was considering reopening ACA enrollment, then said it wouldn't. Then the president last night at the briefing said he was considering it again. What is going on here? Margo, you've been writing about this. I think that there is a real
1: debate about what to do. On the one hand, uh, having this kind of special enrollment period would make it a lot easier for people to get in. So, you know, as you mentioned, Julie, Uh, There are people who are uninsured or who bought kinds of insurance that was not very comprehensive who would really benefit from a special enrollment period. But it's also true that people who lost their jobs and lost their insurance due to losing their jobs, it would make it easier for them to sign up. So right now, uh, you do qualify for a special enrollment period if you've lost your job-based coverage, but you have to provide documents to the government to prove that you're eligible. And I think that can be really hard, you know, particularly for certain categories of workers where they don't have really sophisticated digital HR kinds of systems. And just given the chaos of all of this, you know, going to pick up paperwork at your workplace might be hard. There have been some reports from navigators and other people that it's been hard to upload those kinds of documents onto the system, and there have been denials. So I think there's a view it would be easier, it would streamline, it would get more people in if there was a special enrollment period. I think on the other hand, there are people inside the administration who obviously don't like Obamacare very much, um, you know, support this lawsuit to eradicate the law, don't want to be seen as being hypocritical, sort of using the tools of Obamacare and encouraging people to get coverage there at the same time that they're also fighting the law. And at least for now, it looks like that second group of people has prevailed. A White House official said uh, the other night that they have decided not to reopen the exchanges, but then Trump said something yesterday that makes it less clear. Um, I think it is important to say that this is not a decision that has any particular deadline. There's no decision about this that is particularly final. Um, You know, Trump could decide tomorrow that he wants to have a special enrollment period and one could still happen. And I think that makes it a little hard for all of us to report on and communicate about because, you know, as with so many things with this administration, no decision is necessarily completely final.
0: And, you know, the the president did say also yesterday that he would need the um, approval of Congress to reopen it. But he really he has his own authority to do this, right?
1: Oh, yes, definitely. Um, (laughs) This is something that is very much at the discretion of the administration. But it is also true that Congress could pass a law requiring a special enrollment period for coronavirus. And in fact, that was something that was under consideration when they passed the most recent coronavirus relief bill. Uh, Democrats, uh, I was told, you know, wanted to include it in the bill, but the price that Republicans wanted in exchange was too high, and they basically withdrew that offer. And so, you know, I think many members of Congress have criticized the White House, um, but I think they bear some responsibility here, too. If they really thought this was a very important part of that legislative package, they could have pushed harder for it, and they didn't. But as we all know, also there is more legislation that is very likely coming from Congress, and we could see a special enrollment period required by legislation in one of these later bills.
0: I would point out that the president was asked specifically about that lawsuit, that Texas lawsuit we talk about so much, that's going to the Supreme Court that could overturn the entire ACA. And the questioner asked president, is he rethinking that given the crisis? And he said, no, basically, we're still supporting that lawsuit. So, I mean, where is the administration on, you know, helping people get Health insurance. We got. We just just breaking. You know, another six and a half million people filed for unemployment last week. Alice, you're nodding.
2: <laughs> yes. No. I mean, it's a massive amount of uninsured people, and as Margot pointed out, a lot of those people could qualify for enrolling right now, but the administration has not done anything to make them aware of that or to encourage them to do so. So I think, even shy of opening a special enrollment period, the administration could be doing more to promote existing options. Joy. Two things, as Marco
3: pointed out, people who lost their job can enroll with all that bureaucratic hassle she described, but they don't know that. So had the administration opened the exchange, they could have said, we're doing this, you're all eligible. Even if they don't open it and they leave it to the people who've lost their jobs, which is millions, there's no messaging or saying, here's how you do it, here you can do it, here's this option. Um, So- And they could have even, if they chose, and maybe they still will because things change every few hours, you know, they could get up and say, we really don't like Obamacare and we plan on fixing it if you reelect us or in the future. But in the meantime, it's what the Democrats stuck us with. So we're going to let you sign up for it. I mean, they could have done something had they chosen and they chose not to. And the second point is Trump and Pence last night at the briefing we were asked a lot about the uninsured and coverage and their pledge to have coverage for COVID treatment, not just testing. And their answers were really, really unclear. At Politico, we read the transcript and discussed what it was that he meant and we concluded we're not sure. He was asked about Medicaid expansion. That does seem to possibly be on the table that they would do more um, to let people get into Medicaid in the states that haven't expanded, maybe into traditional Medicaid by redefining the income level where I guess he would need Congress. Um, and they mentioned Medicare as well. So and then he referred to we're going to do what the other side is only talking about. Or It was all quite mysterious. But clearly they are thinking about some form of coverage expansion using the available government programs, the ACA, Medicaid and Medicare. Where it goes, maybe we'll find out today and maybe we won't hear about it again for a month.
0: Yeah, Margaret, you, there was something in your story that I hadn't realized, or maybe it was something that you tweeted about the difference in Medicaid uh, availability if you go through the marketplace or if you go to your straight to your state Medicaid agency.
1: Yeah, so Congress made this nice and complicated uh, when they passed the latest bill that uh, provides for enhanced unemployment insurance for people who lose their jobs. Uh, they have two different rules about how that money counts towards your eligibility for Medicaid and your eligibility for marketplace coverage. So this is very much in the weeds. I don't know if uh, our our listeners even necessarily need to know, but I think what I would say is that if you are a person who is not sure whether you qualify for Medicaid or you qualify for um, subsidies in the marketplace, I think it behooves you to look at your state Medicaid agency first and find out whether or not you are eligible for Medicaid because the rules are different and it's possible that you could actually qualify for both. And Medicaid you know, in general doesn't require any premium, sometimes a very low premium, and it doesn't require a lot of cost sharing at the doctor. So I think for those people who are eligible for both programs, Medicaid is often gonna be a better economic choice. Uh, But if you go right to healthcare.gov, and type in all of your information, it's more likely to direct you to a marketplace plan because there are these multiple differences uh, in how eligibility is estimated for those two programs. And I just wanted to um, say uh, one thing about the ACA in this moment, because you know we've just had the 10th anniversary of the law uh, and I know you guys had a special podcast about this, but I do think as confusing as this all is and as little communicated as it is, I do think it's worth acknowledging that, you know. The ACA was passed on the middle of the really big recession in 2008, but it wasn't there for people at that time. So there were large numbers of Americans who didn't have jobs and didn't have health insurance through their jobs during the Great Recession. And they really didn't have very many options. They could buy COBRA, and Congress helped them a little bit with that. Uh, but Cobra's pretty expensive, and you had to have a certain kind of workplace coverage in order to get it. This is the first really big Economic crisis that this country has faced, where Obamacare has been on the books. And, you know, as everything we said, it's clunky, it's uh, difficult to apply for, and um, not everyone can get it. And the options are not very well communicated. But I also think it is this enormous safety net that is providing a lot of Americans with the ability to have health insurance when they don't have work or when they have less income than they had before, that really just hasn't existed before. And I'm very curious to see uh what enrollment in these programs looks like, particularly in Medicaid, where I think we could see real surge in sign ups in the expansion states, uh which means that lots of people who've lost their job are continuing to have the protections of health insurance as this very dangerous disease sweeps across the country and people may need it.
2: Alice and like you said, um the administration's decisions on this coverage front could change at any time and I think we're still pretty early in this and the political pressure could build we've already seen scattered stories of patients being turned away for lack of insurance or just being hit with huge bills etc and so I think as those stories mount um, there could be political pressure on the administration to reopen enrollment but also on states that haven't expanded Medicaid to do so in some way so I think um It's still early and
0: those pressures could be building. All right. Well, I want to talk a little bit about some of the things that the administration has done. Um, there have been a bunch of changes intended to facilitate care and payment for patients with COVID-19 or who think they might have COVID-19. Uh, the administration's rolling back restrictions on telemedicine. I actually had my first telemedicine uh, doctor visit yesterday. Uh, and on the ability of non-physician practitioners to do more things that we call that practicing to the top of their licenses. Um, and they are also rolling back a lot of safety Regs? What, what, what else? What have, I, what have I missed here that the administration is doing?
3: Well, I think there's just an unprecedented amount of flexibility. And how you roll that back later is something that we can come back to later. Because when you, uh, some things, I think telemedicine will be here to stay. I think the relaxation, I mean, I think they'll have to create better rules and clean it up a bit. But this idea of telemedicine being available, I've done, I did a telemedicine, you know, five minutes got what I needed with my my primary care doctor and I've been doing Uh, telemedicine physical therapy, which is not great. Obviously, there's nothing hands on, but she can watch my posture and tell me, oh, you can do something harder now. So I think particularly for older people or people with chronic disease or people who don't have the ability to get to the doctor very easily um, or who might infect somebody else in the waiting room, I think telemedicine is having its moment. Some of the other licensing fights, you know, then state legislators are going to be bogged down for the next 20 years on what a nurse practitioner can do during coronavirus versus what he or she can do in normal times, but it's hard to take things back. So some of the emergency flexibility we're seeing right
0: now is going to be here to stay. I've covered these incredibly nasty fights between physicians and other practitioners for probably 30 years now. And it's funny that some of these things that they've been fighting about are just going away with, you know, oh, here's a reg, let's do this. I mean, there's, you know, nothing like letting, letting an emergency go to waste. Margot.
1: Well, I, I just, I just want to say that the states do have the final say on a lot of these matters. So what the federal government do- has done is basically said, you don't have any problem on our end. We are clearing out all of our rules about uh, restricting the use of these kinds of practitioners or loosening the kind of supervision that they need from doctors. But none of that changes if state legislators also don't allow
0: it. Yes, yeah, that's true. So the administration is also working with private insurers to get them to promise to cover more costs associated with treating COVID-19, not just testing for it. So far, I think Cigna and Humana say they will cover all costs. Um, That's arguably a good thing, right? For... A lot of people, uh, but not for everybody. (laughs) Some people will be left
2: out of it, and some charges could still happen uh, and fall on patients, even with that, fall through the cracks. And I think that's why it, it was worth us going into the growing number of uninsured people and what can happen there. But I also think on that front, too, it'll be interesting going forward to see how much of a fight there is over when these. Emergency provisions and and what they apply to because I could see a lot of pressure going forward. you know this testing and treatment should be free. Why not testing and treatment for other things? W- what about the next you know big sweeping health crisis um,
0: or existing ones? And also one of the concerns that I keep seeing, although I'm not good enough with math to figure this out, is that if the insurers aren't going to give this stuff away, so if they pay for it all now, it's going to go into higher premiums later, right? It's not supposed to
1: go into higher premiums later. Like, they're supposed to base their premium prices on what they think future costs are going to be. They're supposed to just eat it if they uh, lose a lot of money. But there are these estimates uh, from various actuarial groups that anticipate that premiums are going to go up next year. I think partially because they anticipate that people are still going to need treatment for coronavirus next year, but also because so much other healthcare is getting deferred. So if you we're going to have an elective surgery or something like that. Uh, you're probably not having it this year, but it doesn't mean that you don't still need it. So there are ways in which this distortion of the healthcare system is probably going to result in higher prices next year.
3: And even things like hospitals that are going to lose money now because they're not going to have as much elective surgery and things like that, they're bringing money, they can raise you know, as they negotiate with the insurers next year, something that now costs $100, they're going to try to make it $150. i am just making up numbers, to, because there are going to be a lot of costs that a lot of people have to eat in the system. And, you know, we don't know, the hospitals have gotten money from Congress, we don't quite know what things are going to cost or how that money is going to wash through the system. I, I think it would be un, it would be surprising to to me if we don't see premiums go up next year. On the other hand, um, I also think there was a third, it might have been Anthem. A third company? I think there may, may be Anthem. but There uh, may be by yeah, now. I think it was actually earlier. The other thing is, I think, that it, I wanted to go back to what Alice said, because I think she's right. You know, there's sort of this national feeling that, oh, this is such a crisis, and an ICU stay, ICU stay for three weeks is pretty damn expensive. This should be free, that this is some kind of, you know, act of God, cataclysmic, you know, once in a century a terrible thing we're living through. But there is sort of this, you know, if you're a cancer patient with a couple of hundred thousand dollars, you know, to you, that's also an act of God or whatever your belief is, an act of secular, whatever, it's a calamity on an individual basis. And getting into this, I think that public and attitudes about healthcare are going to change radically as we get through this. And not just within the system is how you know different people, scope of practice, kind of issues within the healthcare world. But I think the public's attitudes are going to change. I think governors are not going to ask for some things they used to ask for. That whole block grant thing is going to look real different after this kind of healthcare and economic crisis. I don't think this makes us go to a Bernie Sanders kind of single payer, but more government role, more affordability, more equity, more. Um, not that risk of bankruptcy. I I just think there's going to be, I mean, right now, it's a get through things. It's a survive this. It's a figure out if we can become a cohesive society in some way once again. And, you know, then we're going to have a whole lot of things to fight about and attitudes are going to change.
2: And I think that, I think that a lot of private insurers see that writing on the wall and are making some of these announcements and um, waiving cost sharing on things um, as, as a PR move, including uh, in addition to, you know, as, as a health and business uh, consideration, uh, just seeing that people are questioning um, how much they should pay for health care right now and how it should be set up and how much the government should be a part of
0: this. And I think because of that, they don't want to look like the villains here. Well, since we didn't do a podcast last week, we should at least mention the uh, the relief bill that got passed. It feels like months ago, but it was actually six days ago. Isn't um, that month It had two, two, $2 trillion dollars. March in it, and... was uh, like three years long. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, the two trillion dollars had a whole big chunk of money for the uh, for the health care system. Um, who, who wants to give the the thirty second review of what's in it and where's it going to go and how's it going to help?
2: Well, I'll I'll start, but Thank others you. should jump in. Um, So one issue with the 100 billion plus for hospitals is that there isn't a lot of details about how it's going to get distributed. And so there is a lot of concern um, over how it will be divvied up because small rural hospitals are already on the edge of closing their doors and running out of business. And especially now when they're not doing these elective surgeries, where they made a lot of their money before and so they are really hurting and need the money but the bigger hospitals and urban areas are also right now handling the bulk of the coronavirus crisis. And so they really need the money too. they have doctors, you know, reusing masks and all of these dangerous things. Um, So I think there's a lot of concern over how it will be divided up and who will get the money when
0: I actually wrote a story about the coming food fight between sort of the large urban hospitals and the rural hospitals who both need money for different reasons. Margo, you want to add to that? Yeah, I think
1: there's also a really big concern among hospitals about just the speed with which the money gets out the door. So, uh, you know, I spoke with folks at the American Hospital Association this week. That's sort of the biggest trade group for the industry. And they said that they were really okay with how vaguely worded the language was in the legislation because they wanted... Uh, there to be an ability to just like get checks out the door. And so what the AHA has asked for is for, I think, about a quarter of the money to just like be given out on a blanket basis, you know, a certain percentage to every hospital um, right away so that they have some immediate financial relief. And then there can be more time for the kind of food fights that we were talking about. Um, I think there's a worry that even if uh, the government gets the formula perfect, Uh, if it takes too long and the hospitals don't get the money, that they're going to be in really acute financial distress. So I think we're going to see sort of fights about both things, fights about speed and simplicity, and then fights about the perfect formula. And I think there's also an expectation by hospitals and other healthcare providers, and maybe even insurers, that there's going to be more money for them uh,
0: coming in future packages. All right, well, one more this week. Um, You would think that the abortion wars would be on the back burner with all the other stuff that's going on, but apparently not. Uh, A half a dozen Republican states, apparently following the famous Rahm Emanuel adage, not to let a crisis go to waste, are effectively banning abortion on the argument that it's an elective procedure. Alice, you're following this. Is this, Is this argument working? So
2: it's working in the sense that one of the biggest states in the country has, for now, banned abortion. Um, the Fifth Circuit allowed Texas's ban to continue while all the legal fights play out at the district court and at the Fifth Circuit at the same time. We could get an update later today on where that's at. There's legal battles going on in many other states, in Ohio, in Oklahoma, and Iowa. So uh, we're tracking all of this. I think it could go to the Supreme Court. I think it will be a really interesting question of government power during a pandemic. I think it will also be interesting to see how well The state claims of the purpose for these bans hold up in court. So they are saying that the purpose is to conserve personal protective equipment like masks and, and gloves and gowns. So they are not used in abortions and that they are all going to hospitals treating coronavirus patients. Abortion clinics that have sued to get these laws stopped are saying that, look, we barely use any personal protective equipment. Uh, This won't really save it. And in fact, if you force people to give birth later because of this, that uses far more. Um, Also, uh, A lot of abortions early in pregnancy are done just by handing a pill. So that doesn't require any personal protective equipment at all. Whereas if someone is forced to delay their abortion for a few months past the point where they can use a pill and they need to have a surgical abortion, that uses more personal protective equipment. And so I think getting into those uh, factual debates uh, will be really interesting going forward.
0: Yeah, this, this was a fight I will say I did not expect, um, but it seems to be happening in a lot of places. All right, well, that is the news for this week. Now we will play my Bill of the Month interview with Liz Sabo, and then we will come back and do our extra credits. We are pleased to welcome to the podcast my KHN colleague, Liz Sabo, who wrote the current Bill of the Month. Welcome back, Liz. Great to be here. So this month's bill is about something that's increasingly common, a genetic test to help diagnose a current disease. Who is our patient and what led her to this test?
4: Well, her name is Michelle Cooper-Smith, and she had a standard typical blood test during her yearly physical, and it looked like she had too many platelets. Uh, Those are the cells or cell particles that are involved in uh, clotting and, and stopping you from bleeding too much. And this went on for a couple of years. So her doctor suspected that she might have um, a genetic blood disorder. So her doctor recommended a bone marrow biopsy where they take a big needle and suck out a, a section of bone marrow. And then they do an analysis and that would help the doctor confirm the diagnosis. And the genetic test provided good news medically, right? Yeah, medically she got good news. It looks like her disease was not aggressive. She didn't need immediate treatment. And uh, the only treatment she's getting for now is that she takes a low-dose baby aspirin every day, and she's going to check in with her doctor every three to four months, or at least she was supposed to before coronavirus. And then, as we say, the bill came. How much was it? $2,400. And this was particularly a shock to her because it was $2,400 for the genetic testing. She didn't even know she was going to have genetic testing. Her doctor just told her you need a bone marrow biopsy. This is a painful procedure, so she put it off for a good long while. But uh, when the bill came, it was for $2,400 for an out-of-network lab. And honestly, she didn't know there would be an out-of-network lab. She didn't know there would be genetic testing.
0: And she, I mean, she had gone to an in-network provider, right? She did all her sort of basic health insurance homework? Yes.
4: She did everything she was supposed to do. She went to an in-network doctor she made sure that she went to an in-network hospital. Um, she had no idea that her blood sample, or that her bone marrow sample, would be sent to an out-of-network lab.
0: So what ended up happening with this bill?
4: Well, she tried making dozens of phone calls and got the runaround. Uh, one person from the insurance company said, well, you needed pre-authorization that you didn't get. She got a letter from the actual lab saying, well, they're denying it because it's experimental every person she called seemed to give her a different answer and she could not get a straight story.
0: And I mean, these tests are no longer really experimental, are they? They're pretty common.
4: Yes, they are common. And genetic testing for her particular blood disorder is considered standard of therapy because not only can it confirm the diagnosis, but people with certain genetic mutations may react a lot better to certain drugs. So it actually can affect how you're treated. So on the one hand, genetic testing is considered the standard of care for someone like Michelle. However, the question is which test by which company, which brand, which type. This field is growing so fast that there's just a huge array of different kinds of tests from different brands. And often doctors and insurance companies don't agree on exactly which test to use. So what did she end up having to pay? In the end... uh, she is not paying anything that's because after KHN got involved and we called her insurance company they expedited her appeal and said that they would cover her lab test as if it were in network Uh, that could potentially leave her on the hook for half the bill which would be twelve hundred dollars however we called the lab and they said they have no plans to have her uh, pay the balance
0: All right, so so this patient had a happy ending, but is there any way for other patients to avoid this? I will say that I had one of these myself. I had a genetic test at an in-network provider that was sent to an out-of-network lab, and it took six months to sort it all out.
4: It's a real uphill battle for a a patient like this. Um, One thing you can know is uh, try to check and see if your state has a surprise billing law. Now, the weird thing about Michelle is that she lives in New York, which has a surprise billing law. Her insurance company is in Maryland, which also has a surprise billing law. So those state laws don't necessarily protect you, but try, if possible, to ask your healthcare provider if any outside contractors will be involved. And there are so many different outside people who can get involved in your care, people you will never see like pathologists, anesthesiologists, clinical labs, radiologists. It's, it's really hard for the average person to even anticipate who might be involved in their care. But try to ask as much as you can, um, and then check and see if, if they're in-network. If they're not, ask if you can go with an in-network provider.
0: So basically, buyer beware.
4: Yeah, it's really tough. Another suggestion is that you can ask if your blood sample will undergo genetic testing. You may need prior authorization in order to undergo these genetic tests. And also be as careful as you can when you're signing consent forms. With Michelle, she signed a consent form that was very vague a year before her bone marrow biopsy. And when we asked the hospital why they weren't complying with New York state law, to alert her to the fact that she might have an out-of-network provider, they said, oh, we alerted her, and she signed on the dotted line. Well, this was a form probably given to her with a stack of forms from a year earlier.
0: So, yeah, buyer buyer, beware. Again, uh, we will keep on this. I'm sure you will, too. Liz Zabo, thank you very much. Great to be here. Thank you. Okay, we are back and it's time for our extra credit segment. That's where we each suggest a story we read the past week we think others should read too. Don't worry, if you miss it, we will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org slash health. Margo, why don't you go first this week?
1: Uh, sure. I wanted to recommend an article from Bloomberg. The writers are Olivia Carville and Emma Court and Kristen V. Brown. And the article called Hospitals Tell Doctors They'll Be Fired If They Speak Out About a Lack of Gear. And um, This is a story about hospitals that are really trying to clamp down on uh, healthcare providers who work there from complaining about unsafe working conditions. So they are threatening to fire or otherwise sanction people if they talk to reporters or make social media postings uh, about not having personal protective equipment. There have been stories like this in a couple of other places as well, but I think it just really... (laughs) I mean, two things. One, I think it is just an ongoing tragedy of this whole situation that we don't have adequate protective gear for healthcare workers and that people are being asked to work in conditions that expose them to illness uh, when they're trying to help people who are already sick. Uh, But also, it just, you know, is really astounding that, um, although not at all surprising to me, that hospitals are trying so carefully to control the messaging about how they're doing it and trying to avoid any kind of bad publicity uh, in this crisis.
0: Yeah, it's really pretty stunning. Alice.
2: Yes, uh, I wanted to recommend a piece from the Washington Post by Amy Goldstein. Uh, It's called Trump Ban on Fetal Tissue Research Blocks Coronavirus Treatment Effort. This was sort of a, a long, simmering story from several months ago that has now gained new relevance. So the Trump administration, under pressure from anti-abortion groups and forces, put a lot of limitations on research using fetal tissue donated by women who've had abortions. And that tissue in the past has been used for all kinds of research on HIV treatments, cancer, etc. Now it could be used to research treatments for coronavirus uh, because this one NIH lab in the story was using the fetal tissue to humanize mice to make them have more human-like lungs and that allowed them to be infected with coronavirus and then they could test different possible treatments and that's all been on hold because of the new trump administration restrictions and the lab has been waiting for weeks for an answer from the trump administration whether they can get an exemption to keep doing this research because we're in a crisis and we need a treatment as soon as possible. And so I think it's it's a real life demonstration of the consequences of these kinds of actions. Joanne? I, I liked a piece, there was an essay in The New Yorker called
3: um, The Death of Juan Sanabria. And he's a Bronx doorman. And it was the story, he was one of the first, it was by Jonathan Blitzer. He's one of the first deaths in New York. And I liked it because This is such an avalanche, and it's enveloping us, and the four of us are involved in some of the policy and national and public health issues. And this was just, it brought it home to the story of one individual, his relationship with his community, because he had been a fixture in that building, on the Grand Concourse in the Bronx, and his family. And their story is sort of everybody's story now.
0: Well, mine is from The New York Times. It's by David Sanger, Zolan Cano-Youngs, and Nicholas Coolidge. And it's called A Ventilator Stockpile with One Hitch, Thousands do not work, Uh, and it's a pretty facial challenge to President Trump's frequent claim that his administration was left with a mess by the previous administration. It turns out that the Trump administration let, let the contract lapse for maintenance of ventilators in the national stockpile, and by the time a new contract was put in place, a lot of the ventilators had fallen into disrepair, which is part of the problem that we have now. It's a very sad story. So that is our show for this week. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also appreciate it if you left us a review. That helps other people find us too. As always, you can email us your comments or questions. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at jrovner. Margo. At Sanger Alice. At Alice solstein. Joanne. At Joanne Cannon. We will be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy. Forgive me, that's my quirky barking.